We're going to go ahead and get started in just a minute, so feel free to grab a seat and get yourself comfortable. So I'm Laura Odata with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking about the healthcare decision with our very distinguished panel of healthcare and legal scholars from the Cato Institute. Since they all have a lot to say, I will just go ahead and tell you a little bit about each speaker and then turn the podium over. First up today is Ilya Shapiro, who's a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato, and also our editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before Cato, he was a special assistant to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues and practiced at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb as well. He lectures regularly on behalf of the Federalist Society and other professional groups. Following Ilya will be Michael Tanner, who is a senior fellow at Cato and researches a variety of policy areas with a particular emphasis on healthcare reform, social welfare policy, and social security. His writings have appeared in nearly every major American newspaper, and he appears regularly on network and cable news programs. Before joining Cato in 1993, Mike served as Director of Research of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation and Legislative Director of the American Legislative Exchange Council. Finally, we'll have Michael Cannon, who is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Previously, he worked on the Hill as Domestic Policy Analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he advised Senate leadership on health care, education, labor, welfare, and Second Amendment issues. Cited by the Washington Post as an influential healthcare wonk at the Libertarian Cato Institute, his articles have been featured in many major newspapers, and he also appears regularly on cable news programs. He's the co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. And with that, I will turn things over to Ilya. Oh, I did not give a chance to get comfortable. <laughs> ah, well, an august and big group here. Um, this is still a big issue. You know, my friends are joking, uh, what am I going to do now that uh, the Obamacare case is done? And I said, uh, what's done? I think I'm, I'm speaking and getting more writing invites now than, uh, than even before. Um, look, uh, I never thought that I would feel uh, so hollow uh, given a, a Supreme Court ringing endorsement of everything that I've been pushing um, throughout uh, the litigation throughout the amicus briefs, uh, starting in the district court level and the, the four that, that we filed in, uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, the Supreme Court got it. You cannot regulate inactivity. You cannot compel commerce in order to uh, then regulate or put conditions on it. Um, just because everybody, virtually everybody at some point, will consume a particular commodity does, that, does not mean that that person then becomes uh, a valid and appropriate uh, subject of, of regulation and command by the government. I mean, the, we got it on all four squares there uh, on the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause as far as that goes. Probably even more importantly with the Spending Clause. Um, uh, we, you know, we had not gotten any favorable rulings in the lower courts on the argument that uh, when the federal government threatens to pull all funding um, uh, if states do not agree to a uh, burdensome new transformation and expansion of, a, of an existing federal program, um, that that's coercive. Uh, and the Supreme Court disagreed. Indeed, seven justices uh, agreed with our position that the the Medicaid expansion, the, the coercion of the states, the conditioning of, as I said, all uh, funds, not just new ones, on new regulations uh, was a violation of the spending clause. That was the first decision since the New Deal finding something unconstitutional as exceeding the federal government's powers under the spending clause. So that was significant. Of course, as we all know, 
however, uh, we won everything except the actual case because Chief Justice Roberts uh, rewrote the law to find justification for the individual mandate under, um, under the taxing power. And I say rewrote, um, not to be cheeky, um, but he, rather than considering what the, world, what the word shall, you know, everyone shall uh, purchase minimum coverage uh, under a penalty of, of such and such, a typical regulatory structure, um, he concocted a, uh, a scenario whereby it's, it's completely voluntary. You have a choice. Either you uh, comply with the individual mandate, buy insurance that qualifies under the uh, set um, governmental rule, uh, or you can choose to pay the tax. I mean, to me, that's kind of like the mugger coming up to you and saying you have a choice, either your money or your life. Um, but nevertheless, I guess that's good enough for government work, and I'm not here to question uh, John Roberts's motives uh, or evaluate whether he made a, a good calculation, you know, whether in, in fulfilling those motives. Uh, I'm here to tell you what the state of the world is after this ruling. And there's three main parts, right? The Commerce Clause slash Necessary and Proper Clause, the Spending Clause, and this taxing power. So real quick, under the Commerce Clause, and it's kind of... Uh, conflated with the necessary and proper clause because the existing um, jurisprudence, the existing powers, um, allowed the government to regulate even local economic activity when in the aggregate that activity has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. That was the law going into Obamacare. That remains the law. If anything, that's been underlined, that the government cannot create activity, and even though somebody might be participating in the market, if they're not now, they can't be regulated just by virtue of you know, being alive. Um, so that's, that's important, but that doesn't roll back anything from, from what was before. It just underlines that, that indeed you know, all that precedent is on the books, and, and that's good law. Um, on the spending clause, as I said, that is potentially the most uh, revolutionary, groundbreaking part of this whole opinion, because now um, courts will look, when particular government action is challenged, whether um, how much of the, of the state's budgets are targeted, are at risk. Um, the, the classic case before this one was 25 years old, South Dakota versus Dole, involving highway funds, and only 5% of those highway funds. And that was linked to raising drinking age because of drunk driving. So the court continuing in the, the it, it upheld um, those strings then, but struck them down now because now a lot of state budgets were implicated, their entire health care infrastructure. Uh, and the new regulations, the expansion and transformation of Medicaid, essentially created a new program. It didn't tinker, it didn't modify existing program. There was, it was a difference of kind rather than degree. Those are the two factors now that courts will consider, according to the Supreme Court. Uh, how much money is at stake? What percentage of the overall budget uh, or of the program? And does do the new regulations fundamentally work to create a new program rather than modifying the existing ones? What does that mean for legislation that's already on the books? Well, the next time the government or Congress uh, thinks that it needs to uh, drastically uh, rewrite, whether it be financial or education or some other laws, environmental protection laws, there might, states will have a choice uh, if something is so transformative as to be a wholly new program rather than just kind of modifying existing uh, regulatory structures. And finally, on the taxing power. 
I don't think this will have legs. I mean, obviously, it's very important that this was the, the hook that saved Obamacare. But for future, it seems like the Chief Justice wrote this um, standard or, or concocted some way to, to save the law without expanding the government's commerce power uh, in a way to write a ticket good for this train only. Um, and so you're not going to have these nightmare scenarios where uh, you have a choice of either buying a Prius or paying a $45,000 tax. That's punitive. Uh, the standard for why this tax, why the man individual mandate penalty never before seen unicorn tax uh, was lawful is because it was low. And so if it was, if it actually approximated the cost of buying one of these expansive plans, it might well have been struck down. But because it's only a few hundred up to 900 something dollars, um, the Chief Justice effectively said it's okay. It can be, it can incentivize, but it cannot coerce. Kind of similar to the spending clause decision. So uh, people cannot be coerced or punished via the, via the taxing power, but they can be uh, incentivized. Um, you do have this odd result where government now uh, cannot regulate inactivity, but it can tax it. But only if, as I said, the tax is low and not coercive, whatever that bar eventually is. For practical purposes, as long as we have the current composition of the court, that in effect is the rule. And I don't think that uh, any other similarly structured tax that, again, has never been tried before uh, would be upheld. I really think Roberts thinks that that's, you know, this kind of unique thing. When we have a new composition of the court, well, all bets are off. They can change the Commerce Clause jurisprudence, they can change the Spending Clause, and uh, certainly they can change this idiosyncratic uh, uh, taxing power. So, um, you know, again, to summarize for, for facts on the ground, um, Obamacare stands, and you know, there's other litigation about other parts of it, but the mandate stands and Obamacare is in place. Uh, but going forward, it's the Spending Clause stuff that I think is really going to affect your work uh, and things that, that Congress will have, to, will have to consider. It can't economically mandate. That much is clear under the Commerce Clause, but it never tried to do that before. But um, it has, Congress has been using its Spending Clause power uh, very expansively, and uh, I'm sure uh, will in the future. That, I think, is the, the most lasting uh, result jurisprudentially uh, on this case for, for, for all of you to consider when you're drafting your legislation and advising your bosses. Thanks. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Michael Tanner, and I'm the half of the Cato Healthcare Hair Club for Men. Uh, so if you've been listening at all to uh, the administration uh, the last couple of days, then uh, they lead up to the vote the House is taking today on repealing uh, the Patient Protection Act, uh, you're hearing that time to move on. The Supreme Court has spoken. There's no need to relitigate and go back and deal with old issues. Now, I do find this a little bit amusing from an administration that just released uh, for the 25th time a proposal to allow the Bush tax cuts on the wealthy to expire. Uh, so occasionally, I guess we do relitigate <laughs> old issues. Uh, but the other question I would ask in general is, okay, the Supreme Court has said in its wisdom that it's not going to strike down the Patient Protection Act. What else about it has changed? All the things that were bad about the bill before the Supreme Court spoke are bad about it today. 
This is still a bill that dictates that individuals must purchase health insurance, and not just purchase health insurance, but must have a specific plan that the government has designated. This is not the individual mandate, never just affected people without health insurance. It affected everybody who must, who doesn't have health insurance that comes into compliance with the minimum standard benefits package that the government designates. This is still a bill or a law that mandates that businesses, small businesses in particular, must now provide their workers with health insurance at an enormous expense or that they must pay a fine, penalty, tax. Uh, this, you know, and we are talking uh, about a very substantial cost on small businesses. Uh, it's interesting to note that, you know, if, you, if you're a small business right now and have 48 or 49 workers, uh, and you're thinking of hiring a couple more, but you don't offer health insurance today, as soon as you offer those work, additional workers, uh, you hire those additional workers, you must now not only offer health insurance to them, but to all your previous employees that you weren't covering before, or else you're going to have to pay a fine based on the total number of your employees minus, uh, minus 20 workers. So you're going to have a, a huge uh, penalty that you are going to have to, to face when you do this. You know, it's, it, you can just make a quick comparison. Uh, you can look at France, for example, uh, where they, like us, have often the uh, kick-in for many of their regulations is at 50 workers, 50 or more workers, and then you have to provide certain wages, certain benefits, and so on. Uh, there are over 3,000 French businesses that have 48 or 49 employees, fewer than 500 that have 50 employees. Uh, there's a reason for this. And at a time when we have a bit of a job crisis in this country, the idea that you're going to make it particularly more expensive to hire workers uh, doesn't strike me as being particularly good policy. This is also a law that will ultimately drive up the cost of health care. Now, uh, of course, if you've read the, uh, the Washington Post today, you know that Secretary Sebelius uh, had an op-ed in which she spelled out, she said, look, since we passed the law, health care expenditures have been rising at a slower rate than they were before the law passed. Uh, of course, the administration's own actuaries note that that's actually because of lower economic growth, generally, in the recession and the fact that people have been being laid off and so on and had therefore not uh, purchasing as much health care because of their economic conditions, uh, that that has actually led to the slower growth. And in fact, the same report that the Secretary cites goes on to point out that once the economy returns to Reg, uh, reasonable, normal economic growth, uh, health care expenditures will rise at about 2.1 percent faster uh, than, uh, because of the law than it would if the, uh, if the law had not passed. Uh, the same is true with health insurance premiums. Uh, the Secretary notes the health insurance premiums ha have been lower over the last couple of years. This is primarily because people who have been losing their jobs have been losing their health insurance. Uh, but the same uh, report once again goes on to say that once economic growth returns, uh, health insurance premiums will begin to rise faster under the law than they would have previously uh, without the law having, having been passed. And finally, this is a law that will continue to add to the growth in the size of government, the amount of taxes we pay, and the amount of debt that we face. Uh, there are, of course, $560 billion or so in new taxes, not counting the individual mandate tax. There's some $560 billion in other taxes, most of, uh, much of which falls on the middle class uh, in this bill. Uh, it will add 
depending on who you believe, anywhere up to 800 to billion to a little over a trillion dollars to the national debt. It will significantly increase the size and cost of government. And I will just give you one, throw out one example of this. Uh, the President, of course, wants uh, this new, you know, to basically have a new tax increase on the wealthy by allowing the Bush tax cuts on anyone earning more than $200,000 a year uh, to expire. Uh, the money that, or the revenue that he would raise from that is roughly half of what Obamacare will spend on Medicaid increases and subsidies. So uh, essentially, you, could, uh, you, you do, would not need any such tax increase at all if you didn't have the increases in spending under the Patient Protection Act. So basically, you're raising taxes uh, simply to pay for the new spending that's going to occur under this bill. All of this said, uh, I would simply point out the fact that if you were opposed to this bill beforehand, nothing that we have learned since the Supreme Court spoke has changed that. Uh, and uh, you know, as Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts himself noted, that in ruling on the constitutionality of the bill, they were not ruling on its wisdom. Uh, I don't think we've seen anything to make this any wiser. And with that, I will turn it over to Mike Cannon. So Obamacare is not constitutional. The Supreme Court declined to strike it down, but that's not the same thing as saying that it's constitutional. They actually found that what Congress did is unconstitutional. They just declined to strike it down because something else that Congress might have done but didn't do isn't constitutional. So it's not, Obamacare is still not constitutional. It's still not a good idea. It's still throwing lots of people out of their health insurance. It's still increasing health insurance premiums. Its taxes, including the employer mandate, are going to uh, continue to reduce uh, uh, job growth. And what I'm going to talk to you about today is how to get rid of Obamacare. The Supreme Court has said that what Congress did was unconstitutional, but it's not going to enforce the Constitution, in essence. So it is up to Congress now to do that, and it's up to the people to do that, and I'm going to talk, going to talk a little bit about how. <clears throat> now, what the Supreme Court's ruling did was it dramatically weakened the law, even though they didn't strike it down. They dramatically weakened the law, and, they, and it clarified the path to repeal. Before I get to how the Supreme Court weakened the law, I want to talk about a feature of the law that was already there that's going to help Congress repeal it. And that is the feature of the law that says that the tax, health insurance tax credits and the cost-sharing subsidies that exist to help people purchase Obamacare's very expensive health insurance uh, and mandatory health insurance coverage through these new government agencies called exchanges, how those tax credits and those subsidies are available only if a state creates this ex the exchange itself. The law is actually explicit, it's quite clear, and it, it specifies in numerous places that those entitlements will only be available in an exchange created or established by a state. Now what does that mean? That means that even though the federal government can create what we call a federal fallback exchange, 
the federal government does not have the authority to offer those entitlements in a federal exchange. So if states do not create an exchange under the letter, uh, under the statute as written, those entitlements will not be available. And what does that mean? Well, that means that, that the insurance companies, who didn't quite like the law as a package, they did spend a lot of money toward the end of the uh, initial congressional debate over this law to try to defeat it, but for most of the debate, they were just sort of going along to get along, hoping that they would be able to cut themselves a deal. They got quite a bit out of the law, as it happens. They got a mandate forcing people to purchase their products, and they got about half a trillion dollars in subsidies under this law through these health insurance exchanges. What happens when states block exchanges is they take the part of the, uh, the, the law that the insurance companies didn't like, the community rating price controls that tell insurance companies you have to charge healthy and sick people of a given age the same premium even, if, uh, if, even though uh, one, of them costs, one group costs dramatically more than, than the other. What happens when a state refuses to create an exchange is that under the statute as written, the insurance companies are not going to be able to shift the cost of those community rating provisions onto the taxpayers. In other words, those tax credits and subsidies won't be available to shift to the taxpayers the cost of those community rating price controls. Those costs will have to be borne by the insurance companies, and the insurance companies are going to have a huge incentive to lobby to change, uh, uh, to lobby to, to, to protect themselves from this law. They are going, and that is going to be true of every insurance company in every state that declines to, to create a health insurance exchange, and there are quite a bit of them. Only 14 so far have enacted legislation to create an exchange. And that has the potential to turn votes. That has the potential to turn a, 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 a member from voting against repeal to voting for repeal. If, if the leadership uh, in, 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 in the House and the Senate say that that's the only train that's leaving the station, that's the only fix that we're to, to Obamacare that we're contemplating. Because think about it, if you are uh, a member, if you're a member of the House, or if you're a member of the Senate, and you start hearing from your constituents that this, is, this law is going to increase my premiums dramatically. It's, my insurance company is threatening to leave the market unless we repeal Obamacare, then even if you might be inclined to support the law, even if you voted for it initially, you are going to have to rethink that vote. You're going to have to rethink that position or else pay a very heavy electoral price. So that was already available to states under the law, that, that, that option and that, uh, that tool for forcing uh, repeal and changing votes in Congress. Uh, there is a little bit, I have to put an asterisk here, the Obama administration, I think, has sensed this, that, that, that this poses a, 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 such a threat to the law. The, and so the IRS has issued a rule where it has said we're going to offer those tax credits and those cost-sharing subsidies in exchanges created by the federal government, even though we don't have any statutory authority to do that. Uh, I don't think that will prevail. And, uh, a colleague and I will be releasing a paper, I think, next week, where uh, a working paper, where we explain w why we don't think that the IRS will prevail, because it's so clearly contrary to law what they're trying to do, and that rule will actually trigger taxes against illegal taxes against employers, and those employers will have standing to challenge that rule in court, and we think they would prevail. Uh, so, but that's the that that strategy uh, uh, for changing votes. Uh, toward repeal was already available It's uh, it, even before the Supreme Court ruling, but the Supreme Court has added another one. The Supreme Court ruling, is, as I, th I think Ilya mentioned, uh, 
struck down the part of Obamacare that says to states, states, you will lose one, uh, I'm sorry, 12% of your annual revenues unless you expand your Medicaid programs. That 12% are federal Medicaid grants to states. They now account for, on average, about 12% of state revenues. And the federal government said, unless you expand your Medicaid programs, you're not getting any of that money. The Supreme Court said, no, that's, that's unconstitutionally coercive. The federal government cannot to, uh, withhold that old Medicaid money from states that decline to expand their Medicaid programs. So now states are free not to expand their Medicaid programs and not expand their Medicaid programs they should. Because when a state refuses to expand their Medicaid programs, they have the potential, as w with refusing to create an exchange, to change the political dynamics of Obamacare in this way. Another interest group that, uh, that really did make a deal with the Obama administration and, the, and congressional supporters of Obamacare were uh, hospitals and other health care providers. They said, look, we don't like the way that you are going to not really cut Medicare, but reduce the projected growth rate of Medicare spending. That means less money to our members. But we do like the way that you're going to be expanding the Medicaid program. We do like the way that you are going to be offering these lavish subsidies to health insurance companies, uh, private health insurance companies through these exchanges, be, because that's money that's going to come back to us. That's money that's going to be spent in hospitals. So on balance, these uh, interest groups thought that, that, was a good, that Obamacare was a good deal for them. Well, guess what? If states refuse to expand their Medicaid programs now, if they use the freedom uh, that, that the Supreme Court has, 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 has preserved for them and decline to expand their Medicaid programs as now, I think, five or six states have, have, uh, have said they would, and a lot of other states are making noises, uh, uh, are making similar noises, then that changes the deal for the hospitals and those other, uh, and, and other interest groups that were expecting those uh, large government subsidies to come their way. All of a sudden, there's, they, still have, they still suffer these, uh, these so-called Medicare cuts, but they're not getting the money that they thought was going to compensate them for that. So that leaves them with a huge problem. And, what, and they're going to go to their members of Congress and they're going to say, we have to do something about this. This is, this is not the deal we signed up for. This is, this is we, are, we are going to be <clears throat> getting paid below cost for uh, a lot of these services that we provide to Medicare enrollees. And we're not going to have that money coming in from Medicaid and from private insurance companies to make up for it. We have to reopen the law. And as with exchanges, if the leadership in the House and the Senate say, we're happy to accommodate you, there is one train leaving the station, and that is repeal, then what those interest groups are going to have to do is they're going to have to go to their, uh, to their members, and they're going to have to go to their members of Congress and say, look, this is terrible for us. You have to do something about it. And that, has, has the, uh, that too, will have the potential to flip votes uh, on repeal. Members who might be inclined to vote against repeal would have to tell their constituents, I'm sorry if this hospital is going to have to close down. I'm sorry if it's going to have to withdraw from Medicare. I'm sorry if, if, if this many jobs are going to be destroyed. I'm, stay, I'm sticking with Obamacare. That's going to be a tough sell for them to make. And so this, uh, this strategy also has the potential to flip some of those otherwise pro-Obamacare votes. So while the Supreme Court's ruling is certainly not the ruling that I wanted to see, Obamacare is much weaker than it was before that ruling. And the path to repeal is much uh, clearer. And, that, that, and, and the path to repeal goes like this. States have to refuse, not to create ex uh, refuse to create exchanges. 
they have to refuse to expand their Medicaid programs. And the leadership in the House and the Senate have to say there is one train leaving the station, uh, to say to all those interest groups who don't, all of a sudden don't like the deal they're getting under Obamacare anymore. The leadership has to say there's one train leaving the station and that's repeal and you better be on it. Thank you.